Hey, Tom Show listeners, it's time for Gen Con 2012, and this recording is coming to you straight from the con. That's right. We present to you here an unedited recording straight from the best four days in gaming. But be aware of what that means. We did not dictate the content. We are not censoring for language. And while our editor, Sam, will try to make the sound as good as possible, we're in a large room trying to capture as much sound as possible. So it may not be as crisp and clear as you're used to. With that said, we as always have to give credit to the folks who help us pay the bills around here, and that's Continue Magazine. It's a quarterly magazine for all sorts of gamers. Video, board, card, mini, and of course RBGs. Be sure to swing by ContinueMag.com, buy a magazine, and tell them thank you for supporting the podcast. Well, without further ado, your Gen Con 2012 recording. Whichever one it happens to be this time around. Enjoy! I guess I should have just gone ahead. Sorry, guys. I really am turning my phone off. Not... Checking what? messages and stuff. He's what? playing games, I can tell. <laughs> Let's all do that, shall we? I got it. See, I almost uh, fell off of this thing yesterday. Yeah, so. I was going to say. I'm not sitting on the edge anymore. Paul <laughs> <laughs> well, almost went off the deep end. I did. Well, wow. Do we have enough room for real? Because I can stand up again. I have a little yeah, bit too. Good. We're good. Okay. Hi, everybody. Thanks for coming. This to the dead panel. Increasingly early hour. I swear 10 o'clock was not this early yesterday. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe it's because I got up later. Anyway, my name is James Wyatt. I'm the creative manager for Dungeons and Dragons, which means I have my fingers in story all across the brand. Um, wherever story comes up, whether it's in novels, in video games, in D&D adventures or settings, even in tabletop games, I or someone on my team is there. Um, yeah, so I'm kind of the guy behind the scenes who's taking all the strands that these guys are weaving and trying to make it into a coherent fabric, which is pretty awesome. Um, working with Nina and Fleetwood, our editors, who are not here. Um, and I'm going to shut up and let these folks introduce themselves before I start talking a lot again. Um, I'm Erin Evans. I'm the author of uh, Brimstone Angels um, and the sequel to Lesser Evils. I uh, also wrote The Godcatcher. Um, what was it? 2010. The Water Deep um, book. And uh, I'm, I'm the author of the third book of The Centering, um, The Adversary. Um, I'm Troy Denning. I've written many Forgotten Realms way back when, starting with Waterdeep and the Avatar trilogy. Um, most recent for work in the Forgotten Realms I've done is Return of the Archwizards uh, trilogy about ten years ago. And I've been writing Star Wars since, and I am looking forward to returning to um, Forgotten Realms with the Sundering. And I'm Ed Greenwood, and in a moment of weakness, years ago, I created Forgotten Realms. <laughs> Forgive me, I was six at the time. And because I desperately needed something to do with my life, and school was majorly boring, I've gone on creating the realms ever since. I spent many a delightful history or geography class cheerfully scribbling away about the history and geography of the realms and totally ignoring the teacher. And that is why I am up here today. <laughs> <laughs> I'm Paul S. Kemp. I've written the um, Erebus Tale stories in the Forgotten Realms, some Star Wars novels, some of my own stuff, and uh, glad to be here. I'm Richard Lee Byers. Uh, in the realms, I've done uh, Year of Rogue Dragons trilogy, The Haunted Lands. I've been doing the Brotherhood of the Griffin series recently, and uh, I've written some other stuff too. Mm -hmm. All right. 
we are going to begin the session with the traditional sermon. <laughs> begin the monologue, James. <laughs> yeah, my, my got me monologuing. Um, <laughs> this is a, an exposition of the holy texts of Waterdeep by Troy Denning and Evermeet by Elaine Cunningham. Praise be to Agma. <laughs> Well, I think we should do that in a chorus every time we stop the chorus. <laughs> that would be pretty awesome. <clears throat> okay. Because they're not recording this, right? <laughs> right. Okay, Ed can go totally off the rails this time. Yes, I am aware. <laughs> okay, so if how many of you heard the Gen Con keynote on Thursday night? Most, but not all of you. Excellent. Um, so if you did, you heard a little bit about the Sundering and what these folks are doing with it. It is the next and perhaps last big event in the history of the Forgotten Realms. Um, and we talked about it on Thursday night primarily from the perspective of, hey, look how cool it is. We brought all these authors together. We had a video of them talking about how awesome the process was. And it was, in fact, awesome. Um, today I want to get into it a little bit from, a lot actually, from the uh, story perspective of what is going on in the world. <clears throat> so. We begin 19,000 years ago. <laughs> this is going to take a while. <laughs> it was a Thursday. <laughs> it was raining. Yeah. <clears throat> uh, 19,000 years ago, <laughs> hundreds of elven high majors all got together at a place called The Gathering Place, which is the name of a place where my mother used to work, actually, uh, <laughs> as a resource center for daycare. Oh, oh, I was just going to ask what The Gathering Place was. <laughs> Day two of the panels when all the ad lib is just flying. Yeah. All right. <laughs> Rock on, James. All right. Um, gathering place, right. <laughs> they all met together to cast a mighty spell that would create a new elven homeland. So their spell succeeded, more or less, creating the Isle of Evermeet far off to the west, a green and pleasant land where the elves could dwell in peace and seclusion. But Evermeet was born out of a tragic catastrophe. Such powerful magic was beyond the control of even such powerful high mages. <laughs> and even as the new land <laughs> was born, the one land called Faroon was torn apart into uh, different continents and gave its name to the largest of those continents. So Eliandreth of Orishar here was an elven wizard at the time. He was not a high mage or else he would have died. Um, but he was still attuned to the magical weave, and as the spell of the High Mages spread, it rippled both backward and forward in time, and Eliandreth saw two similar events in the history of the world. And in this verse, he described all three of them as sunderings. So historians, looking back, uh, used this verse and gave a name to the sundering that created the Isle of Evermeet. Um, and it also pointed to two other events when the world was torn asunder. Right. So I can't find anyone to play domino. <laughs> <laughs> there we go. <laughs> okay, you're definitely more lighthearted today than yesterday. That's a fine thing. So the first of those events Lucky happened 32,000 years ago. On a Thursday? Actually, this one was a Wednesday. <laughs> so at the time, humans were primitive cave dwellers, and uh, the... <laughs> <laughs> The races called the creator races dominated the world. We've changed a lot. Yes. Letty monkey, give me words. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so one of those creator races was a race of amphibioids called the Batraki. They were embroiled in a losing war against the uh, uh, armies of titans 
And desperate to save themselves, they cast their own mighty spell, the uh, summoning ritual that freed several primordials from their imprisonment. Well, primordials walking the earth again, that was not okay, so the gods swept down quickly to, and intervened to try to stop them from rampaging all over. They didn't do a whole lot of good because earthquakes, fires, and windstorms swept across the planet. <clears throat> um, in the midst of all of this, a mighty primordial called Asgaroth, the world shaper, took an ice moon and said, well, if I can't have this world, no one can, and hurled it toward the world, intent on destroying it. And at that moment, before the world was completely shattered, the hidden one intervened. Uh, the overgod, Lord Eo, created a twin of the planet, granting the primordial's dominion over the new world of Abir. <laughs> Aaron and I were just talking about that this morning. Yeah. <laughs> yes, of course. I, I tend to use repetitive hand gestures and see these are worlds, but in Ed's mind, they are not. Um, well, when you're talking about destroying them... <laughs> okay, so there was one world over here. Uh, the new world, Abir, which Ao gave over to the primordials, and the existing world, Toril, which uh, Ao left in the control of the gods. So, uh, another one of the creator races, the... <laughs> <laughs> I'm doing it wrong. More caffeine. <laughs> One of these things is not like. <laughs> um, so another one of the creator races <laughs> trying so hard. <laughs> This is so serious. I love, I love James Sermons, don't you? This is actually not too far off from what I did when I was a pastor. Yes, it is. So another one of the creator races, the Saruk, uh, kept records at the time. And, uh, at this point in history, they remark on the changing of the stars. But up until the spell plague and the return of a beer, no one really knew what to make of that. So Asgaroth's attack, uh, while it didn't destroy the world, it didn't leave it unscathed either. Continents were torn apart and the world was devastated. The four inner seas merged together to... F yeah, this is decent, I think. Uh, merged together to form what is now the Sea of Fallen Stars. Uh, there was a dramatic climate change, which uh, paved the way for the rise of the dragons and spelled the extinction of the amphibioids. Stop it! <laughs> Still doing the finger thing. <laughs> okay. Um, wow. <laughs> Rise of the dragons. So this event has been referred to in history as the Tearfall. Uh, sages have speculated that a comet, or in fact ice moon, fell from the sky, but it wasn't until the return of a beer during the spell plague that the, its true significance became clear. I'm not looking over there anymore. <laughs> so what is little known about this event is the role played in it by the Tablets of Fate, an ancient artifact created by Lord Ao when he separated the world. Um, he created them to stand as a barrier between the two worlds, keeping the gods and the primordials separate from each other and maintaining a precarious balance between them. In Waterdeep, uh, Ao said, on these artifacts I have recorded the forces that balance law and chaos. So the tablets of fate served as pillars to maintain the separation of the worlds, anchors for the mighty magic that Ao used to sunder the worlds, and a clear delimitation now, is that the right word, or do I mean delineation? Delimitation. Delimitation, thank yes. you. Yes, Because I was going back and forth yesterday. No, delineation really means you separate them officially in terms of how you label them. Right. And delimitation, yes, thank is you. what we have here. Yes. Thank you. Wow. Uh, so, they, the Tablets of Fate served as a clear delimitation of the role of the gods and the primordials in the universe. 
Then we come to the second sundering, the one of Eliandreth's time. Uh, the Elven High Mages actually used a spell that was similar to, in principle to the one that Ao used to sunder the worlds in the first place. But they didn't have tablets of fate. They didn't have a powerful artifact that would anchor the spell and keep it uh, constrained. Um, and so their spell ran wild and uncontrolled. It wreaked devastation on the world. Hundreds of cities were washed away. Thousands of elves lay dead. And the face of Toril was changed forever. That was for Ed. Um, nevertheless, the spell was successful in a way. Uh, like Ao's first sundering, it tore apart the fabric of the world and even the plains, taking a little piece of Arvindor, the dominion of the elven gods, and setting it in the midst of the trackless sea, exactly like that, to serve as a bridge between worlds and a peaceful refuge for the elves, where they could be safe from the forces of Lolth and Melar and the other uh, gods that sought to crush the elven pantheon. And then the Tablets of Fate were stolen. In 1358, which is about 120 years ago now, Miracle and Bane stole them from Ao, believing that they could gain some of Ao's power by doing that. So the Overgod, Overgod called all the other gods into his presence and demanded the return of the Tablets. And when the thieves did not come forward, he banished all the gods to Toril in mortal form. During this time of troubles, also known as the Avatar Crisis, magic became unpredictable, and the prayers of the faithful went unanswered. So all your chanting to Ogma will do no good. During this time. Praise be to Ogma. <laughs> <laughs> it was getting too serious up here. Just, so, just poke me whenever you want. Inappropriate things. Okay, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> you, you see, if you write and create, and it's drudgery, it shows. If you write and create and are having lots of fun, that shows too. <laughs> so the tablets of fate were eventually returned, but by then the damage had been done. Ao destroyed the tablets of fate, since the gods had clearly demonstrated that they didn't care about the balance that the tablets were meant to uphold. Again in Waterdeep, Ao says, the tablets mean nothing. He said that because the gods had made a mockery of their meaning. He goes on, I kept them to remind you that I created gods to serve the balance, not to twist it to your own ends. But this point was lost on you. You saw the tablets as a set of rules by which to play juvenile games of prestige and pomp. Then when the rules became inconvenient, you stole them. I'm sure Troy is mouthing along, remembering those words perfectly from when he was. 20 years ago. Yes. <laughs> um, since the gods cared nothing for the balance they were supposed to serve, Ao destroyed the tablets and left them to their games. He destroyed the pillars that kept Abir and Toril apart. If the gods were determined to live in strife and upheaval, they might as well fight the primordials once again. And so the Sundered Worlds began a slow drift back together. <laughs> so from the perspective of modern histories, looking back at this event, it was the start of the era of upheaval. Here's the era of upheaval. The Tablets of Fate might not have contained any of the Overgod's power, as uh, Miracle and Bane hoped, but on them were written the names of all the gods and the, their portfolios, the aspects of mortal life in the natural world over which each god held sway. When the Tablets were no longer in Ao's control, the divine portfolios could shift more easily, and chaos among the gods was the result. By the conclusion of the Avatar Crisis, Faroon's pantheon of gods witnessed the ascension of Sirik, Midnight, who became Mistra, and the Red Knight, the death of Bane, Baal, Ibrandul, and Miracle, and the death and subsequent rebirth of Torm. That was in the course of a single year, less, but like a month? Mm hmm. Yeah. It's a good month. <laughs> <laughs> Certainly an eventful month. 
And once Ao destroyed the Tablets of Fate, the, the chaos continued for more than a century, proving that they had learned nothing from the Avatar Crisis. The gods only stepped up their games of, or their juvenile games, let's be clear, of prestige and pomp, as Ao said. So, Siric and Mask conspired to kill Lyra, the goddess of illusion. Velsharun ascended to godhood. Bane returned to life. Lolf cocooned herself in the demon web pits and emerged more powerful than ever, and then set about consolidating her control over the drow by wiping out a number of other deities. The Mulharandi and Untheric pantheons disappeared from the realms. In fact, in the decade between 1375 and 1385, at least seven deities were slain, mostly of the drow and dwarven pantheons. And then came the spell plague. In 1385, Siric, aided and abetted by Shar, murdered Mistra in her own domain, disintegrating that plane, sending, uh, sending Azuth and Velsharun reeling into the astral plane and destroying the god Savras. Without Mistra to govern the weave of magic, magic burst its bonds all across Faerun and the surrounding plains and ran wild. A year later, perhaps hurried by the effects of the spell plague, a beer, whoa, a beer and Toril <laughs> uh, finally collided, although I think collision is at best a helpful metaphor. The worlds intermingled with regions and continents properly belonging to one world appearing instead on the other. Uh, the spell plague began the second act of the era of upheaval, marked by just as much chaos as the first few decades after the time of troubles. During the century after the Spell Plague, the number of gods active in the Pantheon dropped markedly. More deities died, some simply left, and a few were revealed to be aspects of other gods, or perhaps their power diminished so greatly that they simply merged with similar deities who had managed to cling to more power. Some deities decided to enter the service of more powerful gods to shelter under their wings, uh, becoming exarchs of the greater gods and dwelling in their celestial domains. A holy new god, Zahir, appeared in the realms, and Asmodeus rose from a mere archdevil to full divine status. But that's not all. Besides all this divine upheaval, the world of Faerun was shaken time and again by events from the horde invasion through the threat from, to the, the threat from the sea and the conquest of Sembia and the restoration of Mithdranor. Lots of stuff going on. Those stories mostly told in various novels and sometimes adventure products. And now the third and final act of the Era of Upheaval begins. The third sundering, our sundering. Is it possible for the over-god to change his mind? Perhaps Eo has relented, realizing that letting the child gods run rampant has done nothing but harm to his creation, or decided that he had made his point sufficiently clear. Or perhaps Eo planned all along to end this upheaval at this specific moment in history. In either case, the gods have realized that the end is near, that Eo plans to recreate the Tablets of Fate. They know the plan, but they have no idea what it will mean for them. They know that things will be different when he's done, but different gods have different ideas of what that might mean. Some of them suspect that Eo is going to establish a hierarchy of power based on how many worshippers each god has when the Tablets are complete, extrapolating from his words at the end of Waterdeep, at the end of the Avatar Crisis. So they use their mortal agents, their chosen, to help them gain as many worshippers as they can before the tablets of fate are recreated. Others suspect or fear that Eo will be reassigning portfolios uh, as Eo writes them back down on the tablets. Um, so they imbue their chosen with power to exert the god's influence over his or her portfolio in the world, more or less staking the god's claim on that aspect of existence. 
Some just think it's the end of the world. So they're sending their chosen to make sure that their followers all end up in the right heaven when the end comes. By and large, the gods feel like they have to accomplish something before the sundering is complete and the tablets of fate are rewritten. By the time the sundering is complete, the tablets of fate will be recreated, the worlds of Abir and Toril would be separated once more, and Toril re restored to something akin to its former self, and the pantheon will be reshaped and enriched once more. The political landscape of Faerun, with all these chosen running around and uh, chaos and destruction happening, will change significantly. But once it is over, the word of Eo declares that the era of upheaval is ended. Great stories remain to be told in this new era, but they are not the stories of the gods and godlike beings. They are the tales of mortal heroes taking a stand to preserve the world they love. They are your stories. Uh, so, that really ends the sermon. Woo! <laughs> That's a good sermon. Yeah. I was a good preacher. I will give you that. That's not why I left. Um, oh, no, I sense a story. No. <laughs> it is not a story. There is also no single story of the sundering. All that upheaval of the gods and that they're chosen is really kind of the backdrop for uh, the multiple stories going on. Countless stories emerge during the time of this event. Um, stories of mighty heroes and stories of ordinary folks who are struggling to stay alive and defend what they hold dear. So against the backdrop of this divine drama and this political upheaval of the sundering, we're highlighting six of those stories in novels. And they are The Companions by R.A. Salvatore, The Godborn by Paul S. Kemp, The Adversary, wait, there it is, The Adversary by Aaron M. Evans, The Reaver by Richard Lee Byers, The Sentinel by Troy Denning, and The Herald by Ed Greenwood. In these six novels, we're telling the stories of six people and their allies and companions, people great and small, as the events of their gods and their chosen wars and upheavals play out around them and in the background. None of these characters, not even Elminster Ed, can uh, even see, much less determine, how the Sundering will end. But all of them, through the choices they make, will leave a lasting mark on the new world. These, I, I lied when I said the sermon was over. Ha <laughs> <laughs> ha. Yeah, he was a good preacher. <laughs> <clears throat> these novels and these adventures aren't the only... I haven't told you about the adventures yet. These novels aren't the only stories to be told during the Sunring. Um, IDW, our licensing partner for comics, as I lapse into business speak, Nathan's gone, phew, uh, will be publishing comics that tell the tales of other characters and other lands in this tumultuous time. And finally, the adventures. Bob and Ed are working on two adventures we'll release next year which will provide your characters with their own opportunities to leave their mark on the changing world. I forgot to mention yesterday at this point, but should mention now, these books will be released starting in August next year, and every two months thereafter. So August, October, Save your shekels. December, uh, <laughs> February, April, and June of 2013-2014. So I better get writing. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so with that, now the sermon really is over, I'm going to let the authors talk a little bit. Um, the way that Aaron and I were talking about it this morning is uh, spoil the cover copy for, for your novels. I think that's a good way to think about what you can say, what uh, will intrigue people and make them read them. 
I mean, I know there is a photocopy copy yet, but what will Ed, you're looking at me like I'm insane. No, no, I'm thinking of all the things I wanted to put on the cover copy that maybe I now can. See, you're probably good at that. I'm terrible at that. Okay, so talk Get about your books. motherfucking pages up. <laughs> <laughs> oh, stuff like that. <laughs> Best book I read this morning. <laughs> Not the blurbs, the cover copy. Hang in the outhouse, rip and read. <laughs> I'll tell you what, I'll start because I'm I'm absolutely dead nuts certain that I'll be the worst at this because I'm terrible at talking about my own book. So I'll just kind of give you the primer. The book will will continue the story arcs and some of the themes that I introduced in the Erebus Kale trilogy in the Twilight War. Uh, Obviously it's set significantly after the end of the Twilight War, although the very epilogue of that series is sort of set right about the time of the spell play. So it'll feature... um, Vason Kale, who is Erebus's son, Erebus Kale's son by, by Vara. It'll feature Dracic Ribbon. It'll feature the Shadowvar princes that I have shown in the past, Brynas Rivalin, and some of their machinations around um, Mephistopheles and Telamont and some of the really big kinds of um, things that they all had in mind will not end the way that they think they will end. But, um, you know, it'll be fun, so read it. <laughs> I told you it would be the worst. I'm really, really bad at summarizing my own books. Um, I used to do it for other people. I could do other people's books much better. Um, uh, the adversary. What? Do Gatsby. Do Gatsby. The adversary it follows um, my Brimstone Angels characters, Farida, um, my warlock, um, into the Sundering and. Uh, Deals with you know things from her past that I won't spoil because they come out in the circles um, that are uh, kind of affecting her of her future in a lot of ways and and decisions between you know does she just let that affect her um, she comes under the notice to some degree to a very small degree of uh, a certain archdevil uh, turned god who would like to hang on to all of his power um, and so she you know. She's put in a position where she's trying to keep bad things from happening, and it, it tends to go really horribly awry when you try to solve problems that are that much bigger than you. Um, so, um, I'm writing about a new character named Anton Maravaldi. He started life as a naval uh, uh, officer from a good family and uh, with a promising future, but when we pick him up, he has fallen very far from the. Uh, Path of honor and righteousness, and is a ruthless, amoral pirate on the uh, Sea of Fallen Stars, who never expects to uh, be anything else again in his life. But uh, the events of the Sundering uh, present him with uh, choices and dangers and opportunities that uh, he never could have anticipated. Okay, and I'm I'm going to start spoiling. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Um, I don't think it. I think we actually said this at the at the uh, keynote address. But of course, there's a war, and in the middle of the war, it's, I mean, the the Sundering isn't about a war, but there's a war in the backdrop, kind of thing. Um, and in the middle of this war, I have my um, embittered paladin who has spent his life doing his duty in the city of Marsember. I got that city right, didn't I? I remember. Uh, <laughs> city of Marsember. On, a port, on the, on the, the, the uh, Dragon Sea. Yeah. Right. Right. So, yeah. 
so he's been spent his life as, uh, as a watchman in the city of Marsimber. There's this war going on. Uh, the city is in trouble, and uh, one of the uh, royal members of the royal family is holding up the evacuation because he's trying to load his contents of his entire palace onto a ship, and uh, he's trying to do his duty and, and guard the family and so forth and all of the craziness that's going on and he's, he's got nothing but a bunch of drunkards to help him <laughs> and he still st hangs steadfast because he's been a, he's a his family has worshipped Helm forever in the middle of this um, he meets a princess and, and she uh, has a, a somewhat elevated sense of her own importance but she's very, very good-hearted, and, and their story, that's where the story basically begins with the, the two of them trying to hold things together um, and, in the craziness of this war. Um, and from there, they involves uh, several, several variations of forbidden love that will drive the plot forward. <laughs> um, did I do that okay? Yeah, that was awesome. <laughs> uh, and I get to do the last book. And I'm sure we've all run into teachers, profs, other people, who when they don't know it all, they pretend they do. And they make it up as they go along. Oh, Minster's been doing that for over a thousand years. So he's pretty good at it. But he's also burned out. And he would love to die. Just let it all go. And he's tortured by the realization that if he does bow out without having a successor ready and without taking care of some of the worst foes of Mistra and Order and the Weave, he will be leaving the realms to go to pot. And although the world ends for everybody when they die, assuming they die for good and undeath isn't waiting for them, it sort of makes a mockery of all you spent your entire life striving for. So he wants to take care of a few last enemies before he goes, and he wants to prepare his successors. And whenever he chooses successors, it's painting a target on them. And of course, these enemies would like to take care of Alminster at the same time. And Many of them are magically powerful, which means they're wizards, which means bullshit. He's going to be thick and deep and flung around like poo in this novel. <laughs> because wizards do that. There is a theme about flinging poo. There is a theme about flinging poo, yes. I fling only the finest poo. <laughs> the pooing is next year. Yeah. <laughs> and we need you to buy it in hardcovers. <laughs> There, oh. did, did I do it? <laughs> you did great. Um, that's the other thing I should have said about the release schedule. They're coming out every two months in hardcover. They will all be nice, hefty hardcover tones. Um, we also showed this image uh, kind of to point out that we focused on some of the key characters from each of these books, although we didn't tell you anything about the companions and the guy in the middle there. Um, but this shows an array of some of the most important characters from all of these novels. It's, it's not just those six. So. And we're actually missing two characters off either end. 
Yeah, just because at that because I'm yeah. incompetent that's why how did that happen I did that may I suggest we just have people stand up and point out their characters that's a fun idea or yeah um, there they are except they're not there yet <laughs> what's that oh yeah okay uh, alright or I or you can talk and I can point okay do you want to start with in order with Paul or start with Bob's? You can point his character. Bob, uh, Bob, he's writing about this guy. Who's that guy again? Yeah. Um, and, and this can you guy. see him well enough? <laughs> and this mysterious hooded figure. That's all right. Yeah. You want to tell us who the hooded figure is? I'm not going to tell you who the mysterious hooded figure is, but I will tell you that this is Jen Stewart. <laughs> 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 a rare specimen, a trowel with a conscience. Lost in the world he never made. <laughs> you want me to go now? Yeah. Okay, so uh, Basin Kale is there, crouched with his sword and shield. He is uh, half shade, and uh, Erebus Kale's son, as I mentioned, by Vara. Also, sort of psychologically, the, the spawn of Avalar Corinthal and, the, um, and an order of paladins who serve Lathander, who now this is a monitor. So he's kind of a, he has a bit of a bifurcated existence, which I think makes him interesting. Standing behind him, tall, brooding, kind of the uh, the golem of the group is uh, Erebus Kale from my Erebus Kale novels. All the way on the right, second from the right, is uh, Dracic Riven, who um, is a one-time rival of Erebus Kale, eventually became his kind of uh, frenemy, and um, became semi-divine by the end of the Twilight War imbued with a piece of Mask's divinity. Um, I have Farida right there, the only tiefling up there. Um, and then the guy behind her is Dal Peridor. He's um, a fallen, pal fallen paladin of Agma and a harper. He shows up in Lesser Evils, so. Yeah. Uh, Anton is there. You see he's a snappy dresser, doesn't look very happy at the moment. Uh, <laughs> I love Anton. Uh, it's kind famous. of uh, tucked away behind him and um, Troy's character. Uh, you can see a attractive lady with a uh, bald head and tattooing, which may signify some things to some of you. What color is her robe? I uh, believe it will be red, yeah. the, uh, and uh, you all, and you see a little boy who will turn out to be an extremely important character. Um, I think we're up to me. The, the big fellow with the big sword is Cleef Kenrick. Um, he's my. Did you point him? Yeah. Uh, okay. He's a, he's my paladin. Standing right behind him, right there, is the uh, princess Arietta. Uh, and at the very end is a person that they find themselves uh, protecting for reasons that they don't quite understand, Malik El-Sami Ibn Nasir <laughs> from uh, Crucible, Sirik's uh, Seraph of Lies. And there's one other character who isn't in there, um, Malik's girlfriend. Uh, so. I'll just leave her to your imagination. <laughs> and finally, right in the center, looking as pissed off as usual, is Elminster. And one of the reasons he's looking pissed off is that the only person he has that he can trust to be a friend 
is clear over on the left-hand side of the picture, Storm Silverhand. And she's in a clever disguise. She has her clothes on. <laughs> Contrary to the art references that Ed said. Yeah. Sure. Which, of course, always pisses off Elminster. Oh, yes. <laughs> you almost got Fleetwood fired. <laughs> oh, yes. I forgot. Um, there is a... Uh, yeah, let me tell the story. Just, <laughs> Please do. There is a Wizards of the Coast corporate policy, which I was unaware of. And I was asked to provide good and preferably photographic as opposed to artwork references for all of the characters. And it's difficult to get Storm's face right because she has to be beautiful and have the wisdom and sadness of the ages in her eyes without having a wrinkled old face. And I also needed to get her fall of hair correctly and reiterate over and over and over again for the artists, she has silver hair. Silver like the metal. Not, oh, I'll draw her with white hair. No, no, no. I don't mean a silver-haired, kindly little old lady. I mean silver. So I was casting around for things, and I found a great photograph in a French fashion magazine. <laughs> the French do not have the same standards when it comes to nudity that Americans do. I thought this photograph was just fine because it was somebody looking alluringly over her shoulder at you. So you could tell that she was topless because you could see her entire back and shoulders. And apparently when Fleetwood opened it, he nearly had a conniption fit because you can't have nude and or topless. And I said, well, how do you know? He said, Ed. And I said, there are no nipples. <laughs> And he said, that was the TSR standard. You can't be sending me porn on the internet. And I said, what is the internet for? Um, <laughs> I have here on my computer, do you mind me showing some of the stages that Storm went through? Not at all. I, I can't actually be sure what order these went through, but that was the, the first draft of Storm. See, she looks like a little girl there. She looks naive and young. Look at that profile. And almost looking back over her shoulder. Mm. <laughs> um, I, think, I think then we went there. She looks like a jaded 20-year-old fashion model. <laughs> Weird. Who's just eaten something that disagrees with her. She still looks too naive, too young, hasn't seen the world. By this time, the artist is going... Uh, or other, you know, gentle <laughs> expostulations. Um, but then where we ended up, I can't really zoom in on that. Let me figure out how to do that. But this is indicative of the way this is being done. We're taking the time, Wizards is taking the time to get things right. So if we don't like it, we go back and forth. And Fleetwood would say, okay, what do you think of this latest sketch, Ed? Ed, I'm not going to say anything until you, I get your reaction, rather than trying to steer my reaction. And then I would be politely blunt, as is my wont. So, was your artist drunk? Or <laughs> and then, then we would, and he'd say, no, specifically, what do, what do you need that character to tell the reader or the viewer of that piece of art? And I'd say, oh, world weariness, beauty, has seen it all, wishes she hadn't, 
but it's still doggedly going on. And he'd say, oh, Grizzly Adams. <laughs> I say, yeah, but, but take the beard and move it up on top of her head and make sure it looks like a her. And he'd say, tits? <laughs> no, but I mean, we would go back and forth over and over again until you get the character to look right. It's kind of funny to see them kind of all jumbled together like this because Doll looks kind of smitten. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, no, actually, he's probably what thinking. Over her head, though. He's probably thinking there's an Elko over there. <laughs> you know, it's funny because I, I felt like I had a lot of back and forth with Farida, and when it came to Doll, I'm like, he's good enough. Um, it's not quite how he looks in my head, but I think he has this the right sort of. You know, Looks like James you know, Sutter without the glasses. <laughs> <laughs> now I'm never going to be able to unsee that. <laughs> okay, well, yeah, I, I realize when you're writing the sex scenes that will make it different. <laughs> it's fun to zoom in like this because you can see Farida's two different color eyes. Yeah. And, and, and her expression that says, my hand's on fire. How'd that happen? <laughs> I think it's what this? Oh, man. <laughs> oh, and look at that face on Mason. Oh, shit. He's saying, how did I get in the middle of all these? Yeah. Well, the trick there was just to capture his kind of, the intensity of his, of his father. That's yeah. where that comes from. That, that comes through right there. Although that came through a couple times with hair, which, you know, Kale's whole thing is that he, he's bald and shaves his head when he's irritable. So, which is most of the time. So, I certainly can't have him with hair. In it. Hair today, gone tomorrow. <laughs> what part of bald didn't you understand? <laughs> it's gonna be so hard to be a cover artist like that. Yeah. Yes. Mm, mysterious hooded figure. Mmm, looks female. Mmm, <laughs> brooding dark up. I was surprised to find out how short dressed is. Yeah. He's an elf. I, I know. I just didn't. I, you think of me so hard. Because life, he, and then you see yeah, me, like, he towers oh, he mentally. Sorry, he was always short. He didn't mysteriously grow with yeah. the Yeah, yeah. The drow have always been the shortest of the elves. Wow. We actually went round and round about Elminster's hat. Yes. Oh boy, was that fun. Because remember the remember the Elminster of the lion sword and the no hat. I and just the, noticed that the buckle on his hat looks like an E. Yes, funny how that happened. <laughs> so and there were some of us in the office who felt like the move away from po- wizards and pointy hats was a departure from our roots in fantasy. You know, if you ask somebody to draw a wizard on a whiteboard, they're going to draw a little guy with a pointed hat and a staff or a wand or something. I guess unless they're Harry Potter thinking, but that's a wizard and. So we tried to give him a pointy hat that looked reasonable and cool. Does he have a tail? Does he have a tail? No, that's that's um that's a bow. Eat steps sticking up. Oh. Of course he gets lots of tail. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's his her bow. That's yeah, that's Princess Arietta. <laughs> and she's she thinking that, my opinion. She's thinking that behind Elminster is a good place to be. <laughs> I, I think this demonstrates that as a princess she's sheltered because being behind Elminster is sort of like being on the lawn when the kid next door is learning how to drive. It's a false sense of safety. (laughs) And and she obviously assumes that Elminster is standing in front of her because he wants to protect her. Protect her. (laughs) 
Yeah. That's Cleef, the uh, embittered paladin who uh, finds himself. I would. I wouldn't <laughs> say. Right <laughs> <laughs> finds himself uh, with Arietta. I like his posture. You know, he, yeah. he looks very strong, but also a little slumped. Yeah. Get the way about he, yeah. When do I get to get out of this yeah. armor? Yeah, I'm tired. <laughs> tired of this stuff, but I can't stop doing it. He still has his eye on the princess. Yep, yep. Watching the princess. Ever vigilant. Yeah. There's our tattooed beauty. Yes. Looking appropriately, yes. Well, he, he doesn't look happy. <laughs> <laughs> he's got a lot to be unhappy about. Yeah. But you'll find out. Yeah, he's looking off into the distance. He's saying, he's got something to worry about. I have my whole life in front of me, all three days of it. <laughs> um, but he's also perhaps seeing something that nobody else is seeing. Yeah. His eyes are so bright. Dun, dun, dun. I'm tired of posing. I'm going to run up and kill the pain. <laughs> <laughs> I want those motherfucking snakes. <laughs> oh, so that is actually, uh, that's Dracic Ribbon, who, uh, as far as I know, has never been uh, portrayed before. So I was, I was pleased to have this happen. And he's in the habit of wearing a contemptuous sneer. And which, I love that. Which I think works there. That's. Yeah. Oh, we also went round and round on Malik. Yeah, I don't know. You guys probably went round and round him on him more than I did. Uh, I had a pictured Malik looking a little bit more like um, Peter Lorre. Yes. Right. Yeah. Um, and they sent me a. They sent at least one version that was kind of Peter Lorre, but somehow I got this version, and uh, and you know he's not. If you looked at the whole thing, he's not very pudgy, but I really liked it. I, I thought this is really Malik's. Nature, yeah. There, that was Pete Malik earlier, and uh, when they came back in, I think that, that Nina, the editor, was expecting me to say, "Oh my God, no, that's not Malik." But I loved the the paint, loved what they did, and I said, "You know what? He's been in hell for a hundred years. He can lose some weight." <laughs> <laughs> the infernal guy. Good <laughs> everybody. Cool. That was kind of fun. Yeah, that was fun. Uh, let's see. So when did we get the movie? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'm sorry, did somebody say something? D&D has such a great history of movies. Well, yeah. Um, <clears throat> let's see. I, I'm just going to jump in and say you, you can't believe the care they're taking with the art. Mm -hmm. And yeah. and it's as, probably literally the first time I've ever had editors come to me and say, "What do you think of this painting?" and really want to know, you know, mm -hmm. and rather than just get a stamp of approval, it's like, "What do you think of it?" We'll change anything you want, and you know, you with um, with Cleef, for instance, the first version of him, he was about this tall and about this wide. And I, they said, you know, it may be just a little bit too strong, and they came back and fixed that, no problem. It, it, it's just been an incredible process. Um, to illustrate that a little bit more, we even went round and round on the backgrounds for, uh, that are going to be in each of the covers, uh, which show some landscapes in the realms that we haven't necessarily shown before. Uh, that is, where's my cursor? 
So that's Anton's background. So that's the Sea of Fallen Stars. Somewhere. Spoiler. <laughs> yeah. Actually, I said Sea of Fallen Stars. Yes. Okay, yeah, we, we know that And I know whose background that is. That's Elminster's background. Which wow. might hint at... Yes, Link! <laughs> oh, that's uncomfortable. That's really fun. Is it going to be one of those holographic covers? Yeah. <laughs> Disappears. Uh, that'd be awesome. And that location is? Oh, should I reveal that location? Sure. Okay, that is Candlekeep. Now, you might notice that Elminster is, in fact, outside Candlekeep, which is a subtle hint, because subtle hinting is what we do here. Uh, that subtle? Yeah. Ed. Yeah. Subtle. Yeah. For me. For me. Subtle like brick. Um, that that, that mm, Elminster doesn't spend the, the entire book inside Candlekeep. In fact, one might even say, but I shouldn't. <laughs> there, how you go? There, 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 there. Ooh, That's yours, Eric. Gleaming city on a hill. Cleaves background. He's clearly not in Marsember. And you, you can see in the background what he's waiting for. Coming around, coming up through the canyon. I love that one. I, I just love that when I saw it, and I, I said, don't change a thing. Don't you dare change a thing. <laughs> because I'd been changing things, and, and I thought this one was just perfect when it got to me. Oh, yeah. I have a version of this with only the background characters. The ones who aren't on the covers. Then, whoops. Basin's background. Yeah, so that is the... Um, I don't think that's a spoiler. That's the Abbey of the Rose, which appears in, uh, which is in Sembi and the Thunder Peaks, and is prominent in the Twilight War, and is likewise prominent in uh, the Godborn. Huh. I think I have its background here somewhere. Maybe not without me. Ooh. Snow-covered mountain. All right. Let's see. <clears throat> there were a couple of other things I wanted to make sure got said over the course of this. Uh, and we can go to questions maybe. Actually, let's go to questions now. Okay. Folks have questions? <laughs> Just <laughs> ask. It's really not, not a big deal. Let's yeah. not always see the same thing. There we go. There we go. <laughs> Everybody's like, you go first. Okay. No, you don't. Nobody asked that question yesterday. <laughs> and the answer? You're not sure you can answer them. All of them. Well, um, okay, they're, they're coming out before the release of D&D Next. And we plan to experiment. We want as many people as possible to be able to play them. That's all I'm sure of right now. <laughs> Work is underway. When you go for a major change like this, how do you do you all collaborate together in the writings or do you each take your separate how do you 
we work it out so that it's a continuous story. Because a lot of the stories are so continuous over everything and all the different ages and phases we've been through. Um, in terms of process, we called everybody together in Seattle, except the two up here on the panel who had brand new babies at the time, um, who participated as possible over the telephone. <laughs> participated. I, was, I had my baby four days before that meeting, so I was on the phone, but I don't know that I made, I don't even remember anything I said, or if I said anything. <laughs> you did. I remember everything. Oh. <laughs> um, and what's interesting both about that day, those three days in November and the, the little mini conference we had on Wednesday this week is that I went into both of them with some idea of where I wanted to go and these guys steered me someplace completely different and it was awesome. Um, in terms of continuity, um, as we've seen, some of the characters in these novels are characters who have had previous adventures. Some of them are who have had previous adventures detailed in novels. Others uh, are being introduced for the first time. Um, but actually that was important to us, is to maintain continuity. We didn't want to do a reboot or a retcon or say anything, anything that has happened didn't happen. Um, we're trying to treat the past of the realms with as much respect as its future. Uh, what else? I, did I answer? Oh, oh there, there's one other thing we should emphasize. We have a story guy, a story <laughs> manager, which means that everybody, even if they don't know who to talk to, can talk to James, so that it's all one story rather than what happened in the dim, distant past of TSR at times when books and games did not talk to each other, literally. Yeah. Um, my team at Wizards is me, is the manager and overall story guy. Matt Cernet, who uh, serves as fundamental realms continuity guy. Um, he doesn't know everything, but he knows where to look. Who to ask. Or who to ask, yes. Uh, he also does most of the work with our digital games team in, in coordinating licenses with uh, digital partners. And then uh, Nina Hess, who is editing Aaron and Troy and Ed? Bob. Bob and Bob, of course. Um, and Fleetwood Robbins, who's editing the other three, Ed and Paul and Richard, yes. Um, so we have been working really hard. We, uh, the, the four of us reviewed all of the outlines as they came in, uh, sent feedback to all the authors, uh, and, and worked, we have been working to kind of keep everybody talking together about how the books can kind of subtly Easter eggy link together. Mm -hmm. um, because I guess I should also have made this clear, these really are six self-contained stories mm -hmm. occurring uh, against a common background. Um, you will want to read them all, you will want to read them all in order so that you see the, the background unfolding. But as far as Cleve's story, for example, it is contained within that book. Um, well, until the next book, <laughs> we hope. <laughs> is the Nebula Winter in the middle coming out tied at all with Sundering, or is it set before that? Uh, upon release, it will be set before that. Okay. In the back. How friendly or welcoming, I guess, are these books going to be for people who aren't familiar? with the realms who haven't read any of the other novels. Because it's hard to find a place for people to step into. 
I'm glad you asked that question because I, we are really hoping that these will be a place for people to step into. Um, our, our goal is to write them all in such a way that if you have read previous novels, your experience will be enriched, but if you haven't, uh, you won't get lost. Is that fair? Mm -hmm. yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah. Yeah, I, I think any time you pick up a... You, if you pick up a fantasy novel and it's a good fantasy novel, you know, you have this sense of, oh, there's this rich, detailed, complex world, and isn't that cool? But you don't have to have visited that world before to read that particular story, and that's, that, that, that's yeah. the approach. That's the way it should work. Yeah. 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 Part of the fun is kind of sussing it out while you're reading it. Yeah. And like I said yesterday in the panel, um, I, I'm sure very few of us in this room were alive to experience World War II, but we can read a World War II novel and get the novel if the action carries you along. You don't, you know, you don't have to, but ideally you will end up knowing more about why people were fighting and their backstories and what mattered to them, and I, I, hopefully this will happen in the same way in The Sundering. Uh, the Sundering is a series of stories in which you will look over the shoulders of people as they deal with what's going on, as opposed to doing the DMs thing, standing high above the table, looking down at armies moving across the world. That would be a mistake to think that's what you're going to get. Or chosen moving over, you know, whatever, you know, gods and so on. It's going to be down in the trenches. <laughs> yeah. Oh, the other thing I was going to say about the story team, I kind of lost my train of thought there, um, is that because we're all involved in story in both games and novels, we're working really hard to make sure those things stay in sync. And, and that happens in both directions. So for example, as design is going on for the Warlock class or the Tiefling race, we're sending files to Erin to make sure that we're not doing anything that's going to really mess up what she's doing in her book um, or invalidate her past books or anything like that. Um, and at the same time, maybe there's something there that, that can point to interesting new directions as well. But fundamentally, um, a lot of the reason for all of this uh, is that the world has changed as the rules have changed. And that, I, I think, is not an approach we want to keep taking. Because the rules are really just a lens through which you look at the world. The, the way you, it's the user interface um, for role-playing in that world. And because, just because the, the user interface changes doesn't mean the underlying code should change. Um, so this, this is less about creating a fifth edition realms than it is about getting back to what is true and has always been true about the realms um, and, and letting you interact with that in a way that feels true to what the realms are, uh, whatever rules you're using. You talked about how, as Next is being developed, you're, you're sharing ideas with the authors who are working with those concepts. Um, is that specifically happening, happening with FR writers, or just all people who are writing D&D novels? With everybody who's currently writing a D&D novel. Okay. So, regardless of setting. Right. Uh, here. So, so, you said something a little bit ago about the, the first time you guys all got together as a group being, was it, was it November? Mm -hmm. What, what's your timing? Because that, that, that surprised me that it was that long ago or that quickly after last year's Gen Con, just a few months, really. What, how far in advance 
Are, do you guys work on novel releases and, and, and that sort of thing? I know that's a little more business side of the, than, but, uh, you know, how long have these novels been done or are they done or, you know, what stage are we in, in, in this process? Because you're already talking about they're not going to be released for another year, but we already know, you know, a lot Yeah, of the, we, we are revealing much more about a novel that is being released a year from now or 14 months from now than we normally would. Um, but our normal process has a first draft coming in roughly the, roughly a year before the book is published. Um, November actually was was closer to the release than we would like to be working in the future um, because we really want to take the time to uh, to make sure our, our story is where we want it to be, um, to give the authors time to put their best work into it, um, and really create the awesome novels we want. So, so it's about a two-year process then. Yeah. I mean, which, you know, from from conception, you know, an initial, you know, okay, hey, this is where where we're at. Well, you know, I think to I think generally, in a, if I speak in more general terms, it varies quite a bit. But um, it's not unusual for me to have contracts that are four, five years down the road. Mm -hmm. So, and, and when you want to, and that means when you want to involve somebody in something. You need to have time available. You know, you need to give them time to find a slot because it's not easy. In to in the general people. publishing field, a nine-month um, time to get a novel produced is the norm, and you would actually have to pay extra to bump press time and paper to do a. But for instance, Princess Diana dies. You need an instant yeah. book. You have to pay to bump other people to shorten that process. In the past, I have written a book for TSR in the Double Diamond Triangle saga that I wrote in three hours. <laughs> and because I needed to catch FedEx for it to go, there was no internet in those days, I, they said, we need this, we finally decided what you're going to write, here are the characters, here's the length, um, can you have it in FedEx by tonight to get back to us? That is not the ideal way to write it. <laughs> um, so I can do it, but leaving aside quality considerations you cannot it changes the nature of what you can write you can write straight ahead action at blazing speed when you're writing that quickly you cannot slow down and write chord intrigue scenes you do not have the time to think it through it's that you know but this is a golden opportunity because we have time to think it through and the time is being taken to do that as opposed to oh I'll do all these other things I'll wash the cat you know, I've always wanted to learn the backstroke in my swimming pool in Champagne, and oh my goodness, it's this weekend. Let's write it. Uh, that's not happening because yeah. we're all talking back and forth. So that's right. I, th I think it's all sort of illustrative of the um, you asked earlier about the collaborative process and having that. What feels to me anyway, like a lot of lead time, has really lent itself well to the kind of collaboration that we have to have here in order to make things kind of coherent. Because notwithstanding the fact that these are um, self-contained stories, you know, they, they, they do occur against the common backdrop. They do have some, I think somebody described it earlier, as Easter eggy connections and so on. There are connections between the novels. Uh, they don't, strictly speaking, build off one another in a sequel fashion, but, but, but they build off one another in that respect. So, yeah, no, we need that kind of time. Like, I did, um, and Richard did too, and I came to it very late, but I did more of the Spider Queen which was also, it was a different kind of thing, though, because we were handing off characters from book to book, but it was collaborative, and it was awesome, and I came to it late, so my experience might have been a little bit different, but it was not, this is a different level. This has been much more 
sort of iterative and involved, particularly on the game side. And it's really just been, it's been great. I'm so glad to hear you say that. Yeah. <laughs> I think uh, in the orange shirt way in the back, have your hand up. Yeah, this is more of a um, forgotten realms question. Uh, are you bringing back the Amarok Desert? <laughs> Was, did that segment of me talking in the video end up still in the video? Is this talking about Anorak? I don't believe it did. No, I think oh, it I think got it in there. Yeah. Um, <laughs> just say it could happen. I really just want to say yes. Because <laughs> that's the realms. Yeah, exactly. Well, yeah, why don't you say the short answer is yes? <laughs> and the long answer hasn't been answered yet. Yes, so we had, yeah, how's that? We had a really interesting series of conversations about that, but yeah. But yeah, one of the things we did at one stage in that meeting in November was go through piece by piece each area of the realms and decide what we wanted to do with it and where we wanted it to be. So a lot of that, of course, we can't reveal yet, but but um, but it was all considered. So. Well, and the touchstone for all of it was because we had this conversation very early on. What what and it, the answer different for all of us. But but what is the realms to each of you? I and mean, what does it mean fundamentally? What is I think James said earlier. What's the truth of the realms? So when we were we were looking at all of these things, uh, th th that was sort of the guiding star and the touchstone. So as we considered things like the Anorak or anything else, we thought, how does that square with our conception of what is the realms? Yeah. What what's was incredibly useful for you know, storytelling purposes and gaming purposes, but above the eye, what parts of it do you just, just love? Where's the magic? Oh, that part's so cool. You know? and, and at the level underneath that, in that bit of the video you did see, and I'm, I'm telling Bob, well, originally my conception, Sembia, was the land of fat, rich merchants. That's part of that discussion. We're, all, we're saying, okay, what is this area? What, what have we used it for in the past? When, you, when somebody says the name of that area to you, what do you think of? Because there's a difference between the image of something. Uh, for you guys, what's your image of Fort Knox? You know. Square building empty? Yeah, you see, you see, I'm sure if you went there, you would discover it physically isn't what the image is. But you, so there's a difference between the image of something, what it stands for, what you can use it for, and what you need it to be mentally for you, or it has been in the past, and what it actually is, and therefore what you can use it for. And, and we, we, we discussed that for everything in the realms. And, we, and the point is we all discussed it because it's, it, it doesn't work if everybody says, so Ed, what was this? Okay, that's what we go with. No, it, it has to be everybody in, in the room so we get all the, yeah, but I, I've always thought of Sembia as this way. Or, you know, if Cormier is this, then Sembi is that. Okay, we need to hear all of that and take it all into consideration because that's the closest we can get to asking all of you out there without boring the socks off you in a, in a survey. So, uh, when you think of uh, Kalimshan, do you think, like, um, are, are we talking the last remake of Bogest? Or <laughs> are, are we talking, you know, um, all those Saladin movies? Or what are we talking, you know? Um. I had in my head something I was going to say about that. Oh, uh, so the Anorak answer, I, I want to be careful to stress that 
we are, just like with D&D Next, um, we are trying to take as inclusive an approach as possible so that we're not just taking away everything we, we put in in fourth edition. We're not just undoing everything, um, not everything, but we want to make sure that whatever you love about any era of the realms, you can still use. Um, we might not spend a lot of time talking about spell-plagued Spell-scarred characters or plague-changed monsters, thank you. Um, but that doesn't mean that you can't have them in your game anymore. Um, there are people who love Dragonborn. They're not all going to just ship, up, ship off back to a beer and, and uh, be forbidden in the world uh, anymore. Uh, Aaron's Dragonborn character is not going to mysteriously disappear from the face of the earth. <laughs> It's magic. We have a hand back there for a while. Somebody asked that question. Oh, I mean her, actually. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I just had a question back to something I had said earlier. You said that at one point TSR had given you a three-hour deadline mm -hmm. to the characters in the scenario. Is that typically what all of you have experienced, that the deadline, though, where you're given, we want this kind of scenario and we want this kind of character, do you typically come up with your own? Scenario. Okay. <laughs> well, okay, there are limitations, as in when it's contract time, you say, you know, we're looking at a book at this time, at about this length, and often, if you've done stuff before, it's like, you know, wouldn't it be cool, do, do you want to go on telling the story of, and, and the conversation occurs at that time, so therefore, you and the publisher both know that you're writing another Driss book or another Elminster book, or something different. You know, uh, uh, nobody likes getting surprises. And um, Brian Thompson used to use the phrase, current in the, the publishing industry in general, of never be guilty of not delivering the book that was promised. So if you get a contract from a publisher to write a book on tennis, don't halfway through get fascinated by the submarine war in the Pacific in World War II, and the tennis book sort of goes on to submarines. <laughs> the publisher's going to be a little surprised. <laughs> but, but that's all part of this teamwork thing. Nobody's going to have any nasty surprises because of the teamwork. They're going to have delightful little surprises. Oh, I read this, and this is cool. Not, what the hell are you doing putting titans and primordials in this book? You know, <laughs> you know it's going to be good. Good surprises. Fundamentally, there is collaboration. Sorry, Richard. Um, there is collaboration between author and editor as well. The editors mm, are sure, part of this process. Sure. There is not so much collaboration between author and the brand team. None of them are here. Although they were present at the summit, I don't remember them contributing very much. Sorry, yeah. Richard. Go ahead. I was just to say, in, in my experience working in, in shareables, you can. I mean, you can be asked to address kind of a general theme or topic. That's like by kind of my first big multi-book thing and with Wizards was, you know, they came, they came in and said, well, we decided that the time has come for a trilogy that would really showcase the dragons in the realms, and we think you should write it, and we think it would be cool if it was about a rage of dragons. So, you know, I had that much, mm -hmm. you know, that, that much defined, and then, uh, but from that point, I said, okay, so what do I want to do with that? You know, I mean, so I had, um, yeah, I had I had a gen, general subject matter and, and, you know, and approach to finding those general terms. But you know, then from then it's like, okay, you know, what what pre-existing characters do I want to use? What characters do I want to exactly? How do I want this to play out? What kind of a 
you know, what kind of a story, you know, would would work, you know, and uh, so it, there, is, there is there is a um, there is a level sometimes of you know why don't you tackle this? But so I think sometimes people hear that and they think that that means that oh you just they hand you an outline and you write that out. It's not that way at all. At least for me, it's never been. Even in the case, of, I, I, I was just going to I was just going to say if you look back on your life in another twenty years, it's the journey not the destination. You can say, well, here's my high school diploma, and here's that, but, but that, when you were living it, that wasn't it, right? And it's the same way. It's, it's the journey that you take the readers on, rather than, did you tick all the boxes off of we need to have undead in this chapter? No, 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 we don't do it that way. It's, it's, it's how you get there. Otherwise, we could just sell you the plot outline. Yeah, there, yeah. There, there was a moment in the story session for the Sundering when, and this, you just put me in mind of it, James. And you're talking about Brand. Brand was there, and they're they're great, and so on. But it, it seemed to me we were getting into the weeds a little bit in terms of the kinds of things that um, you don't need to tell authors who are creative people and do things. And I think it, I'm not, I don't remember who said it, but we essentially said, "Look, we're, we're storytellers. Just let us tell the damn. Story. Trust us to tell the story." And they nodded, and that was it. So. I was going to say, even in the case of War of the Spider Queen, where there was a shared cast of characters uh, within all the books, those characters weren't developed and then handed to the authors. They were developed in, as a collaborative process among all Right, the yeah, authors. no, no. As I say, the Spider Queen for me, and Richard, as I say, has a better sort of view on this than I do, but the Spider Queen for me was, was very collaborative, and I didn't feel like I was highly constrained or anything. It's just that compared to this, this has been much more wide open, collaborative, and so on. Yes. Um, are there any like plot elements that you are told, or at least strongly suggested, that you incorporate into your stories? I think we're all told that like this is what's happening during your story in the world. So we have a sense of okay, these are the things that might interfere with our you know our characters or um, uh, affect what's happening. But there was never a sense that okay, you have to mention this and the war here and then the gods do this. It's kind of um, you look at that and you kind of go, okay, how would that filter down into my story? And which of those do I want to really put weight on? And which do I want to say, okay, well, that doesn't affect yeah, me. Yeah, that was my experience too. That it was like the you know it's like these these things are happening and. Uh, but it's not like, it, and you will show that in your story. It's like, oh, I want to show that in my story because that's the part I think is really cool. I, you know, I, I, I want that to be in my book. Basically, during the course of the story summit, basically, we charted out the course of the divine drama and the course of the political drama and then slotted the books into those, partly as the authors felt drawn to those sections and partly uh, by necessity, I guess. Yeah, schedule. Yeah. But by and large, those are happening in the background. Yeah, but I wasn't sure if there was like, okay, we need this to happen. How you get there is your business, but we need this event to happen. Well, I think basically, um, first if you think of the Sundering, all six books, as telling the story of what's happening to the world, and then think of each individual book as telling the story of somebody in that world, um, that kind of helps visualize what the what the whole the end result is but to get there we just we went in and they said we want to achieve x with the forgotten realms and then we sat down and started talking about ways we could achieve that yeah and came up with what is essentially the sundering and then we started talking about 
how that sundering, uh, if you think of a world as a character, what the character arc for the world would be, and we, that's when we charted all of the, the divine drama and everything else. And then we divided it up and said, okay, this is where this story would need to be, and that's what's going to be happening in the world when you tell your story. And that was pretty much the essence of what we did. Now, it was very nice. It was a very cool, creative, freeing process. Sean? Do the adventures um, have a place in the arc, or do they show the whole arc? They have a place in the arc. Uh, yeah. Two by two. Uh, for the most part, they are uh, geographically removed from the novels, so they, they tell a piece of the story that might chronologically overlap with, uh, well, it probably will chronologically overlap with some of the novels, but uh, not directly intersect them. Jeff? Speaking of chronologically, uh, we know that novels are coming out over the course of, of an Earth year. What is the timing in terms of a pharaoh chronology? Are we talking, this is happening over the course of 10 years, 100 years, a month? How think, long does the sundering take? I think it's five or six years. But shorter rather than longer. Yeah. Um, all right, it's the course of a war, in part, uh, but also the course of the world's how they pulling apart? Start eight. <laughs> Sir? Um, is there any possibility of perhaps a six short story novel? Um, Just maybe about the background or an incident and the side characters, the main characters' lives? What a great question. Yeah, what I said yesterday when Brian asked it again um, was that uh, there are business concerns that are kind of beyond my control. But as far as my vision of what I would like to see from an R&D perspective, um, I sure would like to see short stories. As I said yesterday, if everyone would buy like 15 or 20 copies of each of the novels, I think the publisher would find that tremendously encouraging in terms of taking a chance on an anthology. Wallpaper, you're in. Black shirt. Have um, you guys actually thought about it or, or done just playing your characters in a game <laughs> giant game? <laughs> This is, this is my character, and we're just going to all just gonna sit around the table, and we're just going to play just, just for grins. We have thought about it. Um, <laughs> that came up yesterday. Yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah. Troy suggested it in an email that it'd be a great kind of uh, thing to publicize the sundering. Maybe it'll happen. Yeah. Right. Room three, the root beer float orgy. Uh, <laughs> that will not happen. <laughs> <laughs> but like I was saying before, seeing all the characters kind of jumbled together like this makes you start to think about their interactions, and um, it would be fun to see really that play out. Really big root beer float. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, I, I want to encourage, um, and I don't know how much more you guys have thought about it, but audio uh, and uh, releases as well. Um, I, I got the three that are on Audible, uh, the three books of uh, uh, Bob's that are on Audible, I've got all three of those, so that I can hear a, a lot of the, especially pronunciations, I've always, you know, that's my mm -hmm. main thing, I, um, I, I like to be able to hear, I, I, I've got the uh, print version in hardback, I've got the Kindle version, and I have the Audible version of all three of those books. Uh, I would do that. Thank you. I would do that. <laughs> right? I would do that again if there were other. Those are the only three FR books that are on Audible right now. I cannot say anything about that. Um, except that's the um, uh, transitions trilogy. 
Uh, it, it's a funny part of my job now that because we're doing um, more and more work with digital game partners, um, sounds begin to matter much more than they have uh, in a world of print product. So uh, as we speak, I believe we've got somebody working on a very long pronunciation guide. <laughs> that, yeah, there we go. That's all I can say. <laughs> so, Richard in the back. You, yes. <laughs> Uh, the information that's presented in Ed Olmister's Forgotten Realms, the book coming out in October. So that was a definite find for me. I want to show it to my guys on my campaign and be like, ah, this is the Forgotten Realms for a whole bunch of uh, noobs. So we're going to be playing that for a while. How, how much of that information is, is going to be shaken up or reusable or Ooh. not going to be Okay. Ed Greenwood presents Elminster's Guide to the Forgotten Realms, or whatever it's called Elminster's this month. Elminster's Forgotten Realms. Elminster's Forgotten Realms. Okay. Think of this as a rules-free, and therefore edition-free, source book of stuff in the realms that we never cover, because, or hitherto almost never cover, except occasionally in Bolo's Guides, because... The conflict or the new monster magic and treasure takes front row seats and then the word count is filled up with that and think of it as oh geez poisons in the realms maybe a few recipes spice trade when you go to a tavern what's the process of getting your horse stabled what do they do in return for how much money that's sort of like, and how do things change over time? Maybe fashions in the realms. Stuff like that. All these little bits and pieces. So it's usable forever. And it's down on this level. There's the difference between high fantasy and low fantasy, which I, I think it's usually better to call it lunch bucket fantasy because it reminds you that the characters need to eat and then need to go to the bathroom. You might not write that into your novels, or if you do, the editor might take it out. <laughs> but you need to think it through for the whole thing to make sense. This is a book about all the little bits. Um, the last editor to touch this book <laughs> No, second last, because Chris came in when Kim was on holiday to get the last two captions. Um, the last, um, the second last editor, the editor who did the, the main massaging of the text, because the problem with that is, you know, you guys announced last year, oh, we just asked Ed Dig all his notes and put them in a book. And I'm thinking, cool, 120 books, this thick, leather bound, with a little ribbon, gilt like edge. Yeah, and, and that's the first room. <laughs> Of notes, you know, <laughs> so there's no way. So what we're doing is we're cutting and editing, cutting and okay, what what can we put in? What can we leave out? Okay, Kim just sent me the final PDF, split into seven because of the server, of the entire book. When I'm finished Fan Expo, which I go to immediately after Gen Con, I will be sitting down and indexing all of those in detail because the index couldn't fit into the book because we wanted to sacrifice lore. So we want to put the index on the website. 
so you can print it out and it'll look like the pages in the book and you can actually look up everything. Did they say anything about coins? Okay, if you, if you don't have coins, you're using IOUs. Yes, and, and it's the mundane stuff and therefore it won't be invalidated per se by anything in the sundering. It's right down on the daily level. And in, and in fact, and for some of the things I was writing, I say things like, about the 1342 to 1346 in the heartlands, you know, the green wine is most popular, but by 1414, you're more likely to find, you know, there's, there's a little bit of that in it too. But really, the intent is to give a dungeon master a grab bag of stuff that they can use directly, steal, shift, change for their campaign, or just what we all do and what a lot of people do who do not actually game. They pick up a rule book, they put their feet up, and they sit and read it and go, oh, that's cool. Oh, wow. And they imagine that and they just read through it. That's what that book is for. So, was, yeah. There was a point where I uh, printed out the manuscript or the edited uh, manuscript of that book and it was standing by the printer as it was turning out and I would just pick up a couple of pages every once in a while and pick a place and randomly start reading and every time I did that I got an adventure idea Yeah, <laughs> and, and it has nothing to do with uh, with era or edition it's all the little stuff like I said and you know if you guys buy 40 copies of it each <laughs> maybe I'll get a chance to do a few more of them because I've got lots more rooms in my house full of ducks <laughs> With this new evolution of the realms and and the divine drama going on, will we see some of our old? I'm not asking for you to give away any names, but will we see some of the older deities make a return in some fashion? Uh, Ed was talking a little bit ago about um, asking the question of what is Sembia to you. a lot of the time, that, that, that discussion often started off with, so Ed, what, what was your original conception of this thing? And at one point we started talking about the gods, and do you want to... Uh, mm, go on. So Ed's um, answer to that was that in his original campaign, the gods were, were tremendously mysterious, and there were so many of them, and uh, there was no way to, to master that list. Um, so that you'd walk into a temple and see a rite going on and have no idea what god was being worshipped there necessarily uh, to keep that sense of mystery in the realms. Um, And over time, we have a very human desire to catalog and provide lists, particularly in a game source book. And and we have wanted ever more and more manageable lists. And clearly that was a direction that, that ran counter to Ed's original vision of the gods, and it's one that we don't intend to pursue. Yeah, the, the more you detail, the more you take away the mystery, inevitably. Well, I just wasn't sure if <laughs> in and out of games, some of them. Well, okay. There are some favorites that I had that are no longer in fourth edition. Uh, well, think of it this way. If you are a mortal in the realms, you may or may not believe the rumors that you hear in the tavern that were left by the latest caravan coming through, that so-and-so... I'm talking a deity here, is dead. Okay? So you might continue to... To worship them. And certainly, this guy in the robes who lives two villages away, who's the priest of that god, he's still coming out and doing his thing because he needs to eat. (laughs) So, um, how do we know which gods are really, truly... I mean, how can we trust anyone? 
the gods lie to us. Their priests certainly lie to us. And the, the priests may not be even knowingly lying. They may be saying what they believe is, dare I say it, gospel truth. Um, but they, preach, preach. Yeah, but, but they may not realize that they are being fooled by a higher liar. How does it <laughs> you know, so you don't know. So you can go on roof-shipping everything. And, of course, that's the, that's the thing that I think a lot of real-world players have a hard time thinking through. They think of a monotheistic society, and they don't really consider the implications of a polytheistic society where everybody believes in all the gods, but you, you, and, and you may worship a god in a small way because, say, you're taking an ocean voyage, so you go and make an offering to Umberley because you really like the ship not to sink because you don't know how to swim. But you're usually you're a farmer and you're praying to Shanti for good crops. So Shanti's first and foremost. But then, of course, if there's unrest in the in the land where you live in, you might want to give the law and order guys a, a, a few offerings and so on. You know, so, so you're it's not so. Are the gods all gone? Our rule books, our rule books are paltry, small mirrors, tiny foci through which you stare at the realms. Um, those gods need never have been gone for you. Were you there when Mister was murdered? Do you know she was murdered? Did you see the body? Perhaps it was Colonel Mustard in the conservatory. <laughs> uh, we could also uh, that even even if we do choose to accept what we read as the final word on the subject, um, we do know that seemingly dead gods have risen before, right? Yeah, it's not a, it's not a fatal career move. <laughs> not necessarily a career-ending injury. So do not give up hope. I want to go to the second guy back there. Okay. Uh, in the uh, first and, excuse me, First and second edition, uh, Forgotten Realms, Toral, uh, cosmologically speaking, was seen as part of the multiverse commonly called the Great Wheel. And then in the third edition, it was <clears throat> commonly seen as part of the multiverse called the Great Tree. And then in fourth edition, uh, the multiverse, I think that's now being called the, the World Axis Model. To what a, it, aspect, to what effect does the Sundering have on the World Axis? So it, it's funny because as uh, as Ed was talking about what mortals know about the gods, mm -hmm. I was thinking about exactly this uh, issue because it came up in our D&D &D Next DM Mischief panel yesterday. Um, I am of the opinion, a, a very convinced opinion actually, that nobody knows what mm -hmm. the planes, how the planes are arranged because there's no way to pass from one plane to another on foot without going through a portal. Mm -hmm. So... In, in the Great Wheel, is Mount Celestia collect, connected to Bytopia? Well, you can get from one to the other, but not not continuously. You know, you're going through a portal one way or another. So, are they are they linked together on a Great Wheel? Maybe. Are they spread around like islands in a big astral sea? Maybe. Uh, I, there is nobody in the universe except maybe Ao himself, and he's not talking. Who can step back and, and look at the whole and see how it's arranged? Any cosmology really is is a metaphor for understanding the connections. Um, it, it's possible that the cosmology is going to change, but really, who know? Who who would know? <laughs> years and years ago, I had a prof who was at the beginnings of 
quantum physics or quantum mechanics, as they called it then. And he used to love to talk to me because I was a crazy science fiction guy. And I think, view all of those, the great wheel, the great tree, all the rest, as quantum mechanics models of possibilities of the way the universe is ordered. In other words, fairy tales. Because we can never verify any of it. And we always used to end this discussion with, yes, but what if? And I would say, and what if all of these galaxies like grains of sand are mere dirt under the fingernails of a small pink pussycat? And when it cleans its nails, <laughs> and, and, and how can you deny that this might be so? You can't prove anything. So, <laughs> um, Fundamentally, that, that goes back in my mind, at least for the game to that issue of inclusiveness. Whatever model works for you, maybe it's different people in different work, or different people in, in different areas have different ideas about that. Uh, we want that to be able to be a part of your game. Jeff, you've been raising your hand for a while. Uh, and I, I will continuously, but that's fine. Um, digital copies, uh, are they gonna be coming out along with hardbacks, or are we gonna have to wait for those? Uh, we normally do ebook releases simultaneous with uh, the first French release, and I believe that will continue to be the case. Uh, will all of the Sunder novels be a print edition? Yes, they will all come out in hardcover. Right. Yes, sir. Uh, Ed, you said something about putting the index online to the elementary level. Is this something you think about moving forward, like putting the indexes online rather than taking a page count? Because I happen to think that's brilliant. A glossary, you know, maps, that sort of thing. You think about separating that from print product uses I don't know. Um, actually, that was news to me that that was happening, so uh, I, I have no idea. That was me saying, I've got to do this for this product. Yeah. Because by the time we'd finished editing, um, Kim was saying, you realize this is a mishmash of a hodgepodge because it's so many different little things. And the problem with that is, if any of you remember Chivalry and Sorcery, its first edition back in the dawn of time, okay, finding anything in the books depended on your memory. Leafing through it, particularly after the binding split, and they were all free of pain. Okay, well, the same thing. This particular book ran the danger of being a really cool read, but less and less useful at the gaming table in a hurry for the dungeon master who gets caught because they couldn't find anything in the darn book. So I said, I have to index this. And they said, there, is no, there are no pages left for an index. And I said, you've got an epic website. Oh, yeah. <laughs> uh, it is, I think in general, there are some books that don't need an index. There are a lot of books that don't need an index. Um, particularly rules-heavy books, but content-heavy books, I think, need an index, and an index is most useful when you can just flip to it in the back of the book and, well, and look it up. things like appendixes, glossaries, you know, like I said, even extra maps that sometimes you think of web enhancements. Yes. I mean, that kind of stuff, putting that on the internet, rather than take a page count, will get more meat from the book, you know? I, mean, I think that's a brilliant move, you know, something to consider, um, not just with this one Yeah, time. we are always interested in enriching the experience through the use of the internet. So we will keep doing that. Way in the back. I would say with that idea, um, personally, my instinct is, oh, God, no. Um, I want to see it in that book. Mm -hmm. um, 
I may be the exception, he may be the exception. Make sure that you really do that research to, to see which of us is the larger portion of your customer base. There will always be stuff that can't fit in the book, but we will try to make the best call as to what belongs in and what is, is an enhancement to the experience rather than a necessary part of it. There. You're just going to say if you do do that, maybe if you had a space in the book for like what, being able to shove those pages again. Huh. Because, for example, my Dungeon Master's Guide from 3.5, I printed up all the extra material that was available for that, all the rata and stuff. And it's actually messing up the binding of my book, and I have no good place to put it. Right. And other than that. So if you do something like that, <coughs> Publish a folder, publish something that we can actually put it in that's easy to find and easy to look, you know, work on. That's a neat idea. Red shirt. Uh, I, so I mostly, uh, for back to the novels, uh, I mostly a science fiction reader and frequent reader, mostly a gamer. Um, I would really like it as information about the Sundering works its way after Gen onto more websites and more promotion. Uh, it would be really great to get a listing of uh, the previous work of all the authors, like a best of, to, to get a sense of the characters. Well, everyone knows you have. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say, here's the list. <laughs> no, I, not that, you know, I've heard of all of your work, but I haven't read any of it. Do you mean just the Forgotten Realms work, or do you mean all of the other stuff, too? Well, I, I would of other stuff. Yeah. Um, I'm not saying like the top three, but because um, I, I know a lot of my friends who are sometimes readers would be interested in the Forgotten Realms product and tie in with D&D Next, and a lot of people are excited about the shared world, uh, but it's, it's, a little, it's a little intimidating for people who aren't um, novel readers. It's something they do for pleasure a lot. Uh, to get excited for that world, you might want to sort of dip their toes into what's an Elminster book like, um, get to know the tiefling character, um, reach the That's a good idea. I, I can see that taking shape. Blackshirt Bear. Uh, the biggest advantage to doing maps and things as, as a web enhancement is at the table. It, anything that saves me 45 minutes of redrawing the map. And then next week with a different group, drawing it again. And then three months from now, drawing it again. Where I can just print it, use it. I can use some of the same map and then change parts of it. Or, you know, they didn't find this trap, but they didn't have to find it. It didn't affect them. You know, that, that's just brilliant. Anything like that, or if it contains a table that, or if, that everybody needs to see, you know, here, here's this, you know, chart that is perfect for your character because you need to know this piece of information out of this huge normal book. There's a letter you can Exactly. Things yep. like that. Um, I feel like I'm talking entirely too much. If we could focus the last couple of questions on the rest of the people at the table, I would love that. <laughs> Sir? Uh, as somebody who's written you know, short stories and stuff like that, a lot of my main characters have been based off of you know, something that I tie closely to myself. I don't know if Elminster, you know, is, you know, Ed's other half that he, you know, can't, you know, he can't actually be a wizard in this world. You know, if you closely relate to your character, how is the Sundering affected your character in your mind? 
exception to perhaps the exception to everybody else up here because I'm personally attached to about 4,800 named characters that I hope have survived up until now. Um, People look at me and say, oh yeah, Elminster is Ed's alter ego. Look at the long white beard. Got to remember, I was six years old, nerdy young kid with thick black plastic glasses because plastic glasses were the new thing. As a six-year-old boy, I mean, did you want to grow up to be a wizard? No! No, I wanted to be the guy who walked into the room like Florin Falkenhan and said, Hi, I'm Florin Falkenhan. And all the women in the room went, Florin. <laughs> I wanted to be that guy, but I never was. So. <laughs> I mean, I think you should write your autobiography like Leonard Nimoy. I am not Elminster. <laughs> I mean, I think, that, I think that you, I mean, all of your characters, your main characters are you a little bit. I mean, uh, that's... Um, in the case of this character, there's certainly, you know, I mean, I, I really like kind of, uh, you know, you know, clever, you know, sardonic, wisecracking, uh, you know, tough, resourceful guys. I mean, that, I, I don't know that I am that way, but, uh, the, you know, I would like to be that way, and that that's sort of... Uh, that, that, that's that sort of impression of what cool people are like is, is going to pervade my character. And I mean, the, you know, your 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 way of looking at the world and what you value, and you know, and what what you inevitably permeates the way you approach your character. Yeah, I mean, you're always personally invested in your characters to some degree, but I have never. I have never had um, a situation where I thought, why, with respect to a character, because I was particularly fond of the character, identified with particular traits. I mean, any kind of question along those lines has to do with the character arc and the story I'm telling, not with connection between me and the story or the character. So, for those of you that have been out of the realms for a given period of time, what brought you back? This project... They, they called me up and said, hey, would you come out and talk to us? Um, we have something you might be interested in. And I came out, and, and uh, they were right. I was interested. It was just too much fun to pass up. It was the, the energy in the room and the, the excitement and the, um, I don't want to say the weight of what we're doing uh, was just, I couldn't say no. It was, it was very difficult. Yeah, and for my part, I, I mean, I... I was never really gone. I mean, you know, there wasn't that huge of a gap anyway between my last published novel and this one, but, you know, I mean, I, I broke in with the realms, and I've been writing in the realms for a long time, and, and um, yeah, I mean, I've, I've been here the whole time. It's just, I might not have been publishing anything, but my headspace was there. Same for me. Well, then I'm late. I can't escape from it. And you're not going anywhere. Writers, PSR, or, you know, with the 
it wasn't hard at all because for me if if you are not true to your principles when you live what's the point and i burned that bridge back in 1986 when i said sure it's your world now you know i so although there are times when i had minor unpleasant surprises um i'm thinking of time of troubles and the harper troopers come sorry about that <laughs> yeah, the harper troopers come running over the hill and I say what the when did we get into american civil war here you know uh, but but i mean although there are minor nasty surprises that's the flip side of the fact that your own world when you're the sole creator can never surprise you there's nothing around that bend in the road until you put it there so when the player characters ask okay so we 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 go around the corner what's there you have to provide it so the one thing that can happen is your world surprising you and the moment everybody else is working on it it can surprise you it can also enrich it yeah i could i could do all the detailing believe me every day in my life i detail the realms a little bit more but i do not want to become the bottleneck that gary gagax became for greyhawk through no fault of his own and it ate at him because he couldn't both run the company and detail the stuff for greyhawk fast enough for the greyhawk gamers to say where's castle greyhawk you've been promising it for all these years he says i know i know because he wanted to spend his time designing i was designing at top speed but i can't keep up with the demands and and i found that out right away in 1986 because Jeff would phone me up and say, "Hey, Ed, we need this." Oh, and by the way, we need this. And by the way, what do women wear in Kalimshan? Oh, and by the way, and like, sure, sure. And and I was loving doing it, and I'm doing it now. These last few months, it's been back into harness at that same rate, and I love it. But inevitably, I'm going to be the bottleneck. So, to see talented people at work on the realms working together, as opposed to no all the realms is this and i'm going to change it oh no the realms you know everybody's working together it's a delight and a joy there are some things about the historical realms i wasn't too pleased with um in particularly that we had two designers on staff in the old tsr days who were history teachers and wanted to put in analogs of real world stuff the great wall of china stuff like that into the realms and i i kept thinking no that doesn't work you know it doesn't feel right but at the same time i couldn't kick about that because jeff had said okay we need a unified world for the second edition of the realms and it's going to have everything in it it's going to have arabian adventures which became el khadim we're going to have pirate adventures we're going to have jungle adventures and i said oh does do you mean hollywood jungle and hollywood pirate or real what he says yeah hollywood and i okay fine Uh, so once you've accepted that there's going to be something of everything in the realms you can't kick when it gets put there you go okay you know and i think the heartland of the realms and we you know subtle brick type actually call it the heartlands <laughs> is the sort of medieval quasi european um crumbling castles princesses who forget to put all their clothes on when they go out guys who never go outside without 500 pounds of armor on as they clank past you you know uh, th- that was sort of our mental heartland of the realms but everything was there the whole tapestry is there and the thing is the nice thing about the realms it's the unfolding endless tapestry and a bit of me the little bit of me that wants to leave a mark in the world is really happy about that because i think okay if i get run over by a bus tomorrow 
the realms will go on. It's not me, it's the realms, it's all of us. And that's the really cool part for me because, okay, I don't have to think I have to bust my butt every morning because the realms will not get up this morning if I don't get up, you know, because all of you guys are creating the realms and all of these people are creating the realms. And I can sit back and go, hey, I've always wanted to play a drow courtesan who's relocated to Waterdeep, you know, and I can take the time to do that now. Yes. <laughs> yes. Pass, pass the loo. Uh, um, but you see, I can take the time to do that now because the realms is rolling. And for me, what this is, is somebody turned the lights on in the warehouse, dusted off the carpet, and said, We got to weave more of this. This is cool. And they're running out the end of the warehouse into the daylight with one end of the carpet, and we're frantically making carpet at the other end, and it feels so good. <laughs> And that is a great way to wrap up our seminar today. Thank you all for coming. And uh, we need to, to start clearing out the room for the next thing. But What is the next thing? Uh, D&D trivia. Thanks, Mike. <laughs> I texted him saying, is there something in this room at noon? And there is. So we need to